We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoid, the podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. So I did an episode last week on the COVID-19 vaccine. Not anything crazy, just my experiences and kind of a couple of thoughts on the vaccine. And of course, YouTube took it down. So if you were looking for it, I said it was on the last episode. If you were looking for it, I apologize. Nothing I can do. YouTube took it down. So there was no YouTube episode last week, but there will be one today on Monday that I will post. So be on the lookout for that. It will be something that's normal and won't get taken down. Also, I went to a Nashville Predators game today. They won, thankfully. So my voice is completely gone. So I'm not really sure how this podcast is going to come out. Hopefully, you'll still be able to listen to it. And my voice isn't too annoying and scratchy, but just need you to bear with me. been spending the past five hours yelling, so hoping we can get through this episode without it sounding too horrible. But we'll figure it out as we go on. But let's go ahead and jump into the actual story for today. So over the course of this podcast, obviously, we've talked about a lot of really bad things, really disturbing things, but mainly talked about just a lot of really bad people, whether it be cult members or serial killers, kidnappers, government officials. We've talked about just about everything out there as far as what kind of pieces of garbage we've seen in the history of basically our world or the human race. And today's story is no different at all. Another absolutely horrible person um, who committed all these horrific crimes, took people's lives away from them way too soon. But thankfully, he was caught before he was able to do more. Um, And so the mystery is not necessarily of what this guy did. While we will explore what he did, the big thing is... As this investigation was going on originally, a lot of the detectives and people around the case thought that this was not a one-person thing. This was either a team or multiple people doing this. But to this day, only one person has ever been arrested for this crime spree that happened in New York in the 70s. But the person that committed this crime himself eventually came out and said, yes, and he named specific name people who were a part of this. So he comes out and says that he did not work alone. But the case was reopened and eventually closed. But there's still a lot of people out there that are really familiar with the case and some that even worked the case that to this day believe that he did not act alone. And we'll probably never get the answer. He actually is still alive. Um, He's in jail, obviously, but he is still alive. But it's kind of disturbing, like all these things we talk about. A lot of these people get caught, but then with a lot of these stories we talk about, they don't get caught. Like, we don't know who are not necessarily our neighbor, but maybe someone we passed by at Walmart or someone we've seen at a hotel, someone that has served us somewhere. Like, these people, some of these crazy stories, these people literally walk among us to this day. And if we are to believe what he says that he didn't act alone, we have someone out there. He's 67. So you could have someone like I said, I mean, 67 is oldish, but I mean, they're not like ancient. They still can go out and do stuff. So if he, you are to believe that he's correct in New York, or maybe they moved away, but we got literal serial killers walking 
among us and we no one really seems to care to find an answer so we'll talk about it today and you can come to your own conclusion on do you think he could have pulled this off by himself and today we're talking about david richard berkowitz also known as son of sam So while obviously there are a lot of people that had bad upbringings and bad situations that did not turn into serial killers, most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, when we look at serial killers, these horrible people over the history, they actually did have a pretty bad upbringing, childhood or something, some kind of signs. And David Berkowitz is no different. So David was actually, he was born Richard David Falco. June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. And basically it was a couple that just wasn't really ready to have a kid. So basically, I think within a few days of David, which said Richard, few days of him being born, his mother gave him away. And basically, we don't know the exact reason, but basically the, the Dad basically threatened to abandon the mother if she kept the baby. So said a few days into it, she gives her baby away and he is adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz in the Bronx. And they basically said they changed his name to um, David Berkowitz, which is what his name is now. And they said he was just one of those kids that just was just bad. Um, you never really know the exact reason why. They say he had an above average intelligence, but he lost interest in learning at an early age and became infatuated with petty larceny and starting for fires. Neighborhoods and relatives said that he was difficult, spoiled, and a bully. And his adoptive parents consulted with multiple psychotherapists due to his misconduct, but his behavior basically never really got better. His adopted mother died of breast cancer when she was 14. And so he was basically stuck with his adopted father, who they had an absolutely horrible relationship. He got remarried. He didn't like the the new, I guess, stepmom, basically. So that whole situation, once he lost his adopted mother, was just ended up being worse and worse. So in 1971, at the age of 17, he joined the U.S. Army, served in Fort Knox, and he was, I think he served in South Korea, and he had an honorable discharge in 1974, and he actually located his birth mother, Betty, which he finally got the the closure that he needed, or the information that he needed, but he was said news he was greatly disturbed, and I guess basically that kind of just made it worse. Um, he had like an identity crisis and like I said, he, he was already pretty crazy, but just finding out fine. I guess he thought the story was going to be, she was forced to give him up or something. I think he thought the story was going to be a better story, but when she found out he, she, they literally just gave him away cause they didn't want him. I think that just kind of took him over the edge. And like I said, that was in 1971. And now we jump into 1975 where things really start to take off. So we're not exactly sure 
when he actually really started. We're kind of just going to go on a timeline of what he was doing. And this is all according to him and then according to police. But we don't know exactly when his first true crime was. But he claims that his first crime was when he was 22 years old. This was December of 1975 on Christmas Eve. And basically, he claims that he used a hunting knife to stab two women in Co-op City. Um, one alleged victim was never identified by the police, but the other was 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, who was a high school sophomore. And basically, she was attacked near a bridge, and she was hospitalized for seven days. Um, obviously, Berkowitz was never suspected of these crimes. And soon after, he relocated to an apartment in Yonkers, New York. I have never heard of the city of Yonkers before I researched this. But basically, it's just north of New York City. So basically, everything we talk about, basically, as far as his location, is in this city called Yonkers. Like I said, at 22 years old, 1975 is when he claims his was his first crime. But that was not a part of the, quote, son of sam murder spree that is what made him famous the first shooting that is attributed to the actual son of sam name was in july of 1976 and this was in pelham bay at the bronx and this was about one o'clock in the morning july 29 1976 we have donna loria um and i think she was a, a nurse and her friend jody valentina who um, both were nurses or worked in the hospital they were sitting in an Olds, in the Oldsmobile. Um, they were at some kind of disco theater, but in the parking lot, um, just talking. And Loria opens her car door to leave and notice, um, notices a man quickly approaching the car. And she's obviously, it's nighttime, it's one o'clock in the morning, weird looking creepy dude comes walking towards you. So of course she kind of gets startled and I don't know if she tried to run, but she just kind of just stood there, apparently, from what I get. So the man, this man pulls out a pistol from a paper bag and he gets in a crouching position. So he braces one elbow on his knee, aims the weapon with both hands and fires. Loria was struck by one bullet that killed her instantly. Valentina was shot in the thigh and then there was a third shot, but it missed both women. And the shooter turned around and walked away quickly. Valentina, the one that was shot in the thigh, did survive her energy and said that she did not recognize the killer. She would describe him as a white male in his 30s with a fair complexion, about five foot eight, weighing about 200 pounds. He was short with curly hair. And this description was repeated by Loria's father, who claimed to have seen a similar man in a yellow compact car parked nearby. And said neighbors gave basically cooperating reports to police. So everything comes around this yellow compact car that had just been cruising around this little neighborhood hours before the shooting. So remember that said that's where it all started with this little yellow compact car. And this was in 1976. Then the next one was in October 23rd, 1976. Kind of a similar situation in Flushing's New York. You have Carl Denario, who was a security guard, and Rosemary Keenan, who was a college student. Um, they're sitting in Keenan's car, and the windows just suddenly shattered. So Keenan quickly starts the car and speeds away. And these people did not even realize that 
someone had been shooting at them. They just heard a bang and took off, which is smart. But um, Carl Denario was bleeding from a bullet wound to his head, while Keenan only had small injuries from the broken glass. But Denario eventually needed a metal plate to replace a portion of his skull. Neither victim saw the attacker. They both did live. Police determined that the bullets that were inside of Keenan's head were 44 caliber, um, which is important. So that's two pieces to the puzzle we got. We got the yellow car from the first one, and now the 44 caliber gun that was used in this one. Um, Denario had shoulder length hair, so the police speculated that the shooter had mistake, mistaken him for a woman. Um, Keenan's father was a 20 year veteran police detect, uh, detective in the NYPD. So said he's high up in the rankings. Usually stuff like this doesn't really get much traction, but because of this, this got on the NYPD's radar. So this is what kind of sped everything up. He really, he messed with the, with the wrong person. So once this happened, like I said, everybody said, you mess up, we're talking about 20 year detective from the NYPD. Someone messes with his son. Now it's went from this small little thing to, okay, we gotta, we gotta get it together. We're all coming together to figure this out. And then we keep going to November 27th of 1976, high school student Donna Damasio, uh, 16, and Joanne Lumino, um, 18, both high school students, go to see a movie and are walking home after midnight on that night. They're chatting on the porch of Joanne's home in Floral Park when a man dressed in a military uniform, seemed to be in his early 20s, approached them and began to ask for directions. In a high-pitched voice, he says, quote, can you tell me how to get, but before he says any kind of instructions, he quickly pulls out a revolver. He shot each of the victims once and they fell to the ground injured. He fired several more times, striking the apartment building before running away. A neighbor heard the gunshots, rushed out of the apartment building and saw a blonde man rush by gripping a pistol in his left hand. Uh, Donna had been shot in the neck, but the wound was not life-threatening. Um, Joanne was hit in the back and was in serious condition. And while she did live, she ended up being paralyzed. So now here we are in November of 1976, and you see a pattern happening. Obviously, they're all like after midnight. They're all about one o'clock in the morning, but they're in, but they're all in doubles. And said, we'll dig more into this later. But if you notice this pattern, he doesn't find this single woman just hanging out. He's always finding people in doubles. And the first person, the second person he shot was a man with very long blonde hair, which so he we assume he thinks is a woman. But for whatever reason, he has something for people that are in groups. Except most of these situations you see with serial killers are usually like they find like that one lady that's walking home from work or got dropped off or is walking from the bar by himself. But this guy is going at people that have someone with them. Like I said, we'll dig more into it, but just think about that as we're going along. Now we jump um, to January 30th, 1977. So we're now into the next year of this. And once again, same times, at 12.40 a.m., Christine Frode, a uh, secretary, and her fiancé, John Deal, 
were sitting in his car um, preparing, I guess, to go dancing after seeing the movie Rocky. And three gunshots come into the car while they're sitting in there in a panic. Her fiance drives away for help and he suffered minor injuries, but his fiance, Christine, was shot twice and died later at the hospital. Neither victim had seen their attacker. And now, finally, for the first time, the police make their first public acknowledgement that this shooting was similar to the earlier ones we just discussed. And now they, for the first time, say that the crimes might be associated. All victims have been struck with 44 caliber bullets, and the shooting seemed to target young women with long hair, long dark hair. So he seems to have a type. And NYPD Sergeant Richard Comlin stated that police were, quote, leaning towards a connection in all these cases. Um, they had composite sketches released. And, but this is, like I said, this is where it all begins. Conlin, the police sergeant, noted that the police were looking for multiple suspects, not just one. So their first public statement about this, they say they're looking for multiple suspects. Just keep that in mind also. Then on March 10th, 19th, or March 8th, 1977, we have our first individual person that's walking by themselves. Columbia University student, Virginia um, Voskirchen, she's 19 years old, walking home from school when she's confronted by an armed man. And in a desperate move to defend herself, she lifted the textbooks between herself and the killer, but the gun penetrated the books, striking her in the head and killing her. Two days later, on March 10th, NYPD declares that the same 44 Bulldog revolver that had fired the shots that had killed the previous victims were also the gun that killed her. And like I said, now things are really starting to pick up. The crimes were discussed by local media basically every single day. This eventually got around to the New York Post, the Daily News, um, with very graphic crime reporting and commentary, like stuff that we didn't, you didn't really see. Like now we're kind of desensitized to like crime and all that stuff. But back then, like you didn't just talk about this kind of stuff all the time, but it really, really started to pick up after this one. And then jump to April 17th, 1977. Once again, around 3 a.m. after midnight, Alexander Esau and Valentina Sereno, um, one, I think they're both 18, they're sitting in a car, basically a block from the girl's home, and a resident of a nearby building heard four shots and called the police. Um, Valentina, who was sitting in the driver's seat, was shot once, and Alexander was shot twice, both in the head, and um, Valentina died at the scene whereas Alexander died in the hospital several hours later and neither were able, uh, obviously able to describe their attacker. Police said that the weapon used for the crime, once again, was the 44 caliber that was suspected earlier in the shooting. And like I said, we've had some deaths. We had, I think we had one death prior to this, but most of them, they were able to get away. But this is the first one where both people involved started to die, were died in this one so now like i said i don't know if he's getting more accurate or getting more brutal but it seems like he was only attacking really one person at the time i'm not really sure it's hard to get a real picture but only one real person only one person was really getting injured prior they said this is the first time where both victims started to die 
And it was after this murder that things really started to get weird. So the police discover a handwritten letter near the body of Alexander and Valentina, the two we just talked about, mostly written in block capitals with a few lowercase letters, but is addressed specifically to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli. And in this letter, who we now know obviously is Berkowitz, but this is the letter that he wrote. And this is the first time that the name Son of Sam is used. And before this, the, the media had, was calling him the 44 caliber killer because of obviously his weapon of choice. But once this came out, that is when everybody basically started using the word son of Sam. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. If you want to Google it, you can read the whole thing. But like I said, literally, he says, I am, quote, son of Sam. And it's just, it's just a very weird letter. Um, just I don't even really understand what all like so you can read this. I'm it's very long. I'm not gonna read it. But at the very end it says, Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang 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 bank bang ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. And like I said, I don't even really know what that uh, what that means. But basically, it's just a letter just teasing the police saying, basically, you're never going to find me. I'll be back. I'm going to kill more people. Um, just very, very chaotic. Um, and this, I obviously said, made things just the case was already going crazy. But now you got the actual killer leaving notes for the NYPD chief. And like I said, that's when things really really start to go on and like i said the way he wrote it and how uh, the way he wrote specifically with the sand writing plus what he wrote basically led psychologists to basically say that he was probably suffering from schizophrenia and believed himself to be a victim of demonic possession don't know how they came up with that last one they were on the money but basically they said that this dude yeah is obviously completely mentally unstable. Then on May 30th, a month later, 1977, um, Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin receives a handwritten, handwritten letter from someone who claims to be the son of Sam, the 44 caliber shooter. This letter was postmarked the same day from Inglewood, New Jersey. And like I said, this was another super long letter, which I, I, I really don't like I said this guy is just a lunatic. You'll have to Google it and look it up. I don't even know what any of this means, but at the very end, um, it says, P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slang to remain. Please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them best of luck. Keep on digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get the money. Son of Sam. So once again, like I said, we're talking about teasing. He's basically encouraging them. Hey, don't give up. You can do this. I mean, just I mean, just crazy, crazy letters. And like I said, this gets a hold of the media also, and it just comes a complete firestorm. The thing that is interesting about this, though, is that while it is a very weird letter, it's more, it's very, it's more articulate. Um, the handwriting um, is written better. 
And like I said, the vocabulary is better, not as much missed words. So this led um, the police to suspect that it might have been created um, by basically like a copycat who basically um, learned how the person wrote. Because I said they posted the first letter. So basically they were like an expert in like copying handwriting. And then it was not actually the son of Sam that wrote this. But the daily, but you're not going to, obviously you, you may think that, but you're still going to post it. So the New, New York Daily News post published a letter a week later. It said with the police agreeing to withhold some portions. And this crazy article was the highest selling edition of the Daily News ever, literally ever. To this day, it is the highest edition of the New York Daily News ever. More than 1.1 million copies sold. And this actually did do, I guess, a little bit of good because police received thousands of tips based on references, um, which I don't know how effective it was. I guess it wasn't that effective, but this led to a bunch of tips starting to get called in. And now we jump to June 22nd, 1977, and we have Sal Lupo and Judy Placido. Um, both very young, 117, 120, and they were sitting in Lupo's car. Like I said, this seems to be the theme that people are just sitting in the car. 3 a.m., and three gunshots blasted into the vehicle. Um, Sal Lupo was wounded in the right forearm, while Judy was shot in the right on her face, her shoulder, and the back of the neck. But surprisingly, both victims actually did survive their injuries and sal lupo told the police that the couple had just been discussing son and son of sam moments before the shooting which that just has to be creepy you always say knock on well i say knock on wood that's a huge knock on wood situation they're literally talking about son of sam and moments later he shoots into their vehicle and again neither saw their attacker but Two witnesses reported a tall, dark-haired man in a suit running from the area. One claimed to have seen him leaving a car and even supplied a partial license plate number. Don't really know whatever happened with that because I don't see, didn't see anything in my research. But people are actually seeing this person. Not that the people that are getting shot aren't seeing him, but there are witnesses around seeing him. So he seems to be sloppy, but just good enough to get away at the same time. So with the first anniversary of the first shooting approaching, basically the police ramped up their mission, obviously, and they have like a little perimeter set up, basically what his hunting grounds are, which is the Queens and the Bronx. So now they're like, okay, we need high patrol, high everything in the Queens and the Bronx. But the next shooting to happen occurs in Brooklyn. So it seems like, um, son of Sam, this guy is either just really smart, has inside help or something. But the moment they kind of set a perimeter up, he goes outside of what he, the perimeter of what he had actually been doing. And on July 31st, 1977, Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Villalante once again, sitting in the guy's sitting in the guy's car, which was parked under a street light, 
Um, basically, they were on their first date. They were kissing when a man approached within 90 feet on the passenger side and fired four rounds into the car, striking both victims in the head before he escaped into the park. Um, their man named Tommy Zeno was a witness to the shooting. Um, Violante lost his left eye and Stacy, the only blonde victim, died from her injuries. That night, detective, a detective was awakened at home and was told to report in. Um, he was given two weeks to work on the case as a normal murder investigation. Um, and if it couldn't be solved, um, it was supposed to be given to Son of Sam Tax Force, which is not really important, but you'll see how it all connects. So, like I said, once again, you just see every single thing. All of them are after midnight, and except for one, um, one was a single person, but it's always usually a male and a female sitting in their car, and he doesn't, except like he just shoots him. He doesn't even knock on the door. He doesn't, like, he, he has a set plan, a set everything to get close enough, shoot, and leave. I mean, it just... It's just super, super weird how he came up with this. And like I said, there's victims. I mean, there's witnesses every time. He's not doing this in the middle of nowhere. There are witnesses that are sitting there watching this happen, able to get somewhat of, this, of a description, but not good enough to get this man. And he's just doing this, like not even really seeming to try to be really slick with it. So our hero is ends up not actually hero, but the person that at least gets this thing in motion is just a regular resident, a woman named Cecilia Davis. She's walking her dog um, at the scene of the last shooting that we're talking about. And she saw um, a patrol officer ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant moments after the police had left. Um, basically, she saw a young man walking around the area that looked suspicious and she said he had something, a dark object in his hand, but she couldn't tell. So she ran home only to hear shots fired behind her in the street. She actually did stay silent about this for four days, um, I guess mainly out of fear, until she finally contacted the police. And basically they checked every car that had been ticketed in the area that night. Among one of the cars that were ticketed that night was Berkowitz 1970 four-door yellow Ford Galaxy. And like I said, they're just, these are, they're not even really looking that hard at him. They're kind of just bringing everybody in. Okay, these all cars were in the area. We're just going to bring them in for questioning. But then once they call, said this, this guy is from Yonkers. So they call the Yonkers police for help to track down this dude. That's when the Yonkers police says that they have their own suspicions about Berkowitz in connection to some strange crimes. Um, so... And one of the Yonkers investigators even told the New York City detective that Berkowitz might be the son of Sam. Obviously, he was correct, but they were on the Yonkers police was already on to him way before the NYPD was, which is interesting. Seems like they had um, more intel. I'm not sure. But the very next day, August 10th, 1977, the police investigated um, Berkowitz's car. Um, and there was a gun in the back seat in a duffel bag with ammunition, maps of the crime scene, and a threatening letter addressed to an NYPD detective. 
So police decided to wait for Berkowitz to leave the apartment rather than storm in there and have some kind of violent shootout. They also waited to obtain a search warrant for the apartment, worried that the search might be challenged in court. So they said they did everything from what we see right and by the book. The initial search of the vehicle is based on the handgun that was visible in the back seat. So, so they're doing everything by the book. But the warrant had not yet arrived when Berkowitz exited the apartment at 10 p.m. and entered his car. So the, the detective approached the driver's side of the car and basically pointed his gun at Berkowitz's head while detect another detective pointed the gun from the other side of the car. Um, not sure how moral actually that is, but either way, the paper bag containing a there was a paper bag containing a 44 caliber bulldog revolver that was found next to Berkowitz in the car. And Berkowitz, when this all happens, when they kind of ambush him, he says, well, you got me. So he didn't say try to fake it. I think he knew the day was coming. He was waiting for it. And he says, he says, first he says, well, you got me. Then he says, how come it took you so long? And that was it. And say he didn't go down. He didn't try to put up a fight. He was he knew this day was coming. He gets arrested. And that was it. Um, they did search his apartment, which was an absolute disaster and had satanic satanic graffiti on the wall. They also found diaries that he had kept his whole life. And just basically, I mean, it was basically a full confession of everything he did in his journals. And to go along with putting up a fight, he confessed. I said it took about 30 minutes of interrogation that morning. And he confessed to all the shootings and told them that he wants to plead guilty at his hearing. Um, during questioning, he did claim that his neighbor's dog was the reason why he killed. Um, he said Sam was his former neighbor, Sam Carr, and that Carr's Labrador retriever was possessed by an ancient demon that commanded Berkowitz to kill people, which obviously yeah, I would assume is not true that this your neighbor's Labrador retriever told you to do this, but that's what he claims. And a few weeks after all this, he finally gets to talk to the press. And in a New York Post interview, he talks about that demonic possession. But the interesting thing he says is, quote, there are other sons out there. God help the world. And this helped the people interpreted this as him saying that there are other accomplices that are out there that did it. And We'll get into that in a second. But he was claimed competent to stand trial. And on May 8th, 1978, he pleaded guilty to all the shootings. And not too soon after that, he was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder to be served consecutively. Um, he actually is, which is crazy. But because he pleaded guilty, he actually was eligible for parole in 25 years which he was denied parole in 2002, 2016, and 2020. Um, each time, thankfully, he was denied parole. But technically, he can keep doing that until he, he dies. Now, to go back about what he said about there being other sons of Sam's, um, he 
basically said that there are other ones out there. He brought up other cases that were not related to his. And he said that the people that did it told him specifically what happened and they kind of matched what happened in the case. And basically he comes out and says that he had only killed three of the victims and that the other shooters were involved in the other attacks, um, basically providing um, early surveillance, being lookouts, being drivers. Um, he couldn't put all the names out because he said he didn't want to put their family at risk. But um, basically, he declares that at least five cult members were at the scene of one shooting. Um, and with real no explanation, like he just said, very vague. He did name two cult members that were dead, but very vaguely, he says there are other sons of Sam's. Like he only killed three, but at most of these, he was just a lookout or just a driver. And not too soon after he says all this, the case ends up being reopened, not solely because of what he said, but the district attorney at the time of the killings and the police investigator working the case both were pretty convinced that he had accomplices. And basically, there were three different suspect cars, five different suspect descriptions, different heights, different shapes, different sizes. Somebody else was there. That's a direct quote. So, like I said, they had already kind of had this belief, but then him coming out and saying that kind of added to him. And one of the victim's father also believes into this theory. He just claims that more than one person was involved. So everybody's kind of split on this. There's obviously a good amount of people that are like, okay, this is a hoax. There's no demonic cult out there. But then, like I said, you got district attorney and people that have actually looked at the case and did the research and are like, there's no way only one person did this um though the case was reopened no other nothing basically has come out of it um it was closed again he's still the only person to have ever been charged um former fbi member who spent hours interviewing berkowitz said that he acted alone and is basically just trying to get more attention so i mean it's Based on how the research that you do, like I said, it's split 50-50. Some are like, there's no possible way one person could have pulled off this by himself. And a lot of people are like, yeah. I mean, there's been serial killers that have acted alone, so he definitely could have pulled this off. So, of course, the whole point is my podcast. People, and this was a suggestion, um, this episode. So people want to know, what is my thoughts on this? And originally going into this, like I've known, I knew about Son of Sam going into this, but I had done like super intense research. And my initial thoughts originally were, well, there's been tons of serial killers. I mean, tons that have done way more than this, unfortunately. So it being a single person is 100% um, not beyond the realms of comprehension. But as I did more digging... It's, it's, it's not as clear cut as I originally thought. There's evidence of, said in that park that he was in, um, there was evidence of some kind of like ritual, basically animal sacrifice being burnt out there. You got the two different handwritings um, or the two different notes, one that was like from someone unintelligent, another note from someone that was actually intelligent. And then he tells him story. He tells a story of 
which crimes he did, and then he lists which ones he didn't do. But the ones that he claims he didn't do also have a different description. Now, did he already know that? Did he get some information from someone? I don't know. But the ones that he claim he doesn't do, the victims themselves, or the witnesses, I would say, the witnesses themselves are um, the description they give is someone of a way different size, way different height, and a different car. So like I said, he could just have known and conveniently and lined them up, or he could actually be up to something. And like I said, as I've done more research, I don't know if the number is five. I don't know if it's two, but as I've done more thinking, like I said, he did one shooting and ran off into the woods. Like he just did this stuff in plain sight and just somehow never got caught. I could see there being a situation where there's at least two or three. I don't think it's a giant group or something. I mean, it could be, but I have come to the conclusion that I, I, I don't know a hundred percent, but I can see a situation now where he didn't work alone. And like I said, that's creepy, super creepy. When you think about the Zodiac killer, you think about all these other ones that have never been solved. You just think, like, I don't live in New York, thankfully. But if you live in New York, one of these people could be your neighbors. One of you could be the uh, old man that you always see on the front porch or someone you see at the grocery store. Like, six, says Sam Berkowitz is 67. So, and, you know, my parents are nearing 60. So, like, 60 is still a very young age as far as they can still be active, like, Someone in New York, except if there is more than one person, someone in New York is neighbors with a Son of Sam member. And that in itself should creep you out. That in itself should make you, quote, paranoid. And like I said, that's the whole point, basically, of this podcast, to explore these things and basically just kind of freaks you out, basically. You just know that all these unsolved mysteries out there Either, I mean, they could be dead. Something could have happened to them. But there's a good chance that these people, not necessarily this situation, but some of these things we talk about, are literally just walking around right now with a family, with a regular job, never did anything after. But they just have those skeletons in their closet, and you'll just never know. So just think about that. Next time you see that friendly neighbor, you never know what they might have done in their past. That is all I got for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode, maybe learned something new. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. And so this episode that I did today, even though I knew about it, it was a suggestion, so I went ahead and did it. So if you have any suggestions, anything you want to talk about, feel free always to hit me up on there. Sometimes I do miss text, but I try to respond to everything that I see. If you're on Apple or iTunes, just take a quick second to leave an honest review as try to get the YouTube going. People are going to come to the podcast and want to hear what you have to say. So just take a quick second to leave an honest review and we'll be back next Monday with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson and this is Paranoid.